Welcome back to another episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be talking about some more future topics, including the rise of VC funding for water firms. Yes, you heard that right, water firms. Exploring the old idea of a space elevator and if we could actually make one work, and then talking about machine learning and how it has actually improved our modeling of materials on a subatomic level, meaning that we can better predict what will happen when we make something. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive, ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So if we were to go forward and we were to have our unlimited options on the way that you think would be most efficient in order to reproduce or get water in a way that is not going to impede on anybody's life. It's not going to take too many resources, but you need a way to get safe, potable water. What would you try to do? And the reason I start there is because there's this VC push in Europe for a lot of these water tech companies. And a lot of the different solutions they have are interesting and simple, and some of them are more complex and crazy. And I want to know what comes to your mind first, and then when you hear the rest of these, maybe you'll think outside the box a little bit further next time. Because I'll tell you, some of them I was like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. I see where they're coming from. And some of the other ones I was like, oh, okay, I didn't even know that we were trying something like this. All right, so let's jump into the article. It is titled... WaterTech could be the next gold rush for European VCs. So we, of course, are dealing with the fact that here on Earth, only about, what, 7% of the water on Earth is fresh water, as far as I'm aware. And we are going to overstrip that. We're going to overuse that going into the future. As populations grow, as we need more food for said populations, we're going to start using more water. Now, of course, I'm not saying that it's end-all, be-all, we have to limit our water usage. No. What I'm saying is it's just an inevitable fact. Until we hit that point where populations start to decline and everybody's on the same level as the West and they actually have a negative birth rate and populations kind of even out, we're going to start using more and more water. So, of course, the question then becomes, well, how are we going to get more water? And this is how we roll as human beings. At the end of the day, we see a problem, we predict a problem, and not all of us act instantaneously. Maybe you still leave the tap running a little bit longer than you should, like I probably do. But there are people out there who are pushing the edge, who see the problem, or at least see the potential for the problem, and therefore they see the potential to make money off of it. Or they're just good people that want to, at the end of the day, save the earth or make it more accessible for a lot of people to get easy access to clean water. And then there are VC firms that recognize, oh, okay, this is actually... Uh, the potential here to make money is actually pretty large. Maybe that's the right way to put it. You have the business people who want to come in and make the money from it, and then you have the inventors who are doing it out of curiosity, love for science, or for the goodwill of the people. Not saying that either one of them is misguided in their assumptions or 
the reason that they're doing what they're doing. Just saying that's probably more accurate than saying that the people who are inventing it are seeing it as a way to make money first off and foremost. So let's go to the article talking about why this is starting to be a more popular field in Europe specifically. Quote, Europe just had the most severe drought in 500 years. Industries are being forced to shut down or divert water from other sources to maintain operations. While protests have broken out over shortages most recently in France and Spain. Experts predict the global freshwater demand will outstrip supply by 40% by the end of the decade. Water technologies, from pulling water out of thin air to transforming saltwater into fresh and everything in between, will be critical to helping industry and society adapt to this new reality. Unfortunately, water tech companies still receive a small fraction of total climate tech funding. Out of some 50 billion euros invested in climate tech globally in 2021, just 430 million, less than 1%, was allocated for water tech, end quote. So you can see here that there is an opportunity, or at least there's a lack of attention given to these different companies. And I think the VCs, the venture capitalists, if you didn't know what I was saying by it earlier, are recognizing, hey, this is going to be an important technology. It's been underfunded, meaning a lot of people haven't actually been able to build up the infrastructure, build up the companies. So if we get in on this now, there aren't a lot of competition. There isn't a lot of competition out there and we can really take advantage. And some of these companies are doing a little bit more with less and some of them are coming up with whole new schemes. So I want to talk about one of the ideas that is produced by doing more with less. This is being more efficient, creating better systems in order to transport the water and things like this. Because I think that this is the first thing you have to address. Of course, we want all the crazy innovations where you're pulling water out of thin air, you're putting the giant nets up like they used to in the Incan times and collecting water from clouds. Those are all great things. But if we have infrastructure in place that's not able to actually properly or most efficiently utilize the water that we're getting, then no, 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 no. Why would we want extra water if we're just going to lose some of it? Quote, from source to treatment to tap, a lot of money, energy, and resources go into supplying water we use nowadays. Shockingly, up to half of this water, half of this water is lost due to leaky pipes. Another big chunk is lost to inefficient use, and in most countries, water is never reused. But as water scarcity increases, so does the need to start doing more with less. One company catering to an up-and-coming segment of water-conscious homeowners in Sweden-based Orbital Systems, the startup which has raised over $56 million to date, has developed a shower system inspired by NASA that reuses water in a closed loop. But don't worry, the shower is equipped with sensors to detect urine and other unsavory liquids, which gets filtered out before the water is reused. Thank God. The company claimed its shower of the future saves 90% of the water and 80% of energy compared to a regular unit. While the systems aren't cheap at 4K, Orbital says that homeowners could save $1,100 per year in water bills. But 
You don't necessarily need hard be hardcore to save water use. Belgium-based startup Sharps AI software can detect whether a building is leaking and find the most likely source. Data from the building's existing water meters can get pulled into Sharps platform, and then AI automatically classifies leaks in order of importance. End quote. So you can see here that, of course, we're coming up with technologies that allow us to better utilize the water we do have. But I really like this second one that looks at the pipe system because this is something that, of course, you don't necessarily think about it so much. Unless you're dewinterizing your pipes or you actually have a leak, you sometimes forget about them because they're in your walls, they're underneath the sink, they're underground too when you're talking about getting... Uh, water from the local water system. So if we could improve the efficiency here and we could really hone in on where the leaks are, then we could stop losing so much water to the ground. And it's also important because a lot of the pipe systems are old and maybe they're made of materials that are corrosive like metal that have the tendency to either put a few extra minerals or unsavory minerals in our water that we don't want to deal with or simply they just crack and break over time, meaning, like I said, we're losing water to the ground. It's literally just leaking out of these pipes and going straight back in the ground. Now, eventually, we could have access to it again. Maybe it filters down to an aquifer. But guess how many years it's going to take? It's probably going to take a few hundred, if not a thousand years for that water to get where we're going to be able to access it properly again. So we need to be more efficient with what we have. And it all comes down to the exploitation or the use of data. So there are other ways that companies are going about fixing or addressing this water problem. And there are a few different projects that are going around that are trying to really emphasize, hey, we don't have to just worry about reusing old water. We can actually find new ways to get said water. And one of them is a new solution to the desalinator or a machine that takes ocean water and gets rid of the salt in it and makes it more potable. And it's actually called the desolinator. Quote, desolinator, hailing from the Netherlands, has been working on this kind of tech for almost 10 years. Desolinator's system uses a hybrid type of solar panel, which as a combination of regular PV and solar thermal technology, slated for, to be four times more efficient than regular panels, brings down the cost of the final product of the fresh water. Desolinator launched its first fully operational solar thermal desalination plant in Dubai last year. The system has a capacity of 20,000 liters per day and could produce potable water at less than a two cents per liter. And these costs are expected to go down as the technology scales up, end quote. And yes, I did jump into the middle of a paragraph there because the reason they're actually having this conversation is, well, Elon Musk said it's really easy to desalinate water but then the author was like, well, hold on, hold on, Elon. It's kind of, it's easy, as in we have the technology, but it consumes a lot of energy. So we need to find a way to make that more efficient so we're not running off of fossil fuels. And then he brings up the solinator, using energy from solar panels, using the solar power that we have grown to love so much in this world, and then use that in order to power the desalination plant. And I think this is a really innovative, you know, simply innovative in that taking two disparate products or two different products from different categories and combining them together in order to make a more efficient and still safe 
and environmentally friendly product. This is this is a good move on the part of Netherlands. And this is the nice thing that we can see the synergy between different types of green technologies. Because the fear for a long time in my mind was that we're just going to push for green technologies that don't integrate well with the current systems we have. Well, if we have multiple green technologies that can synergize like this, imagine what else we could do with wind power. If we could have the large wind turbines out in the middle of the ocean, which exploit the higher uh, amount of breezes or the higher wind velocity out at sea, and then have a desalination plant literally just attached to it at the bottom, imagine how much more efficient we could be than having that energy ported on land and then having a desalination plant on land. So if there are multiple synergies here between the technologies of a green future, this is good because it also allows these in, this industry to grow beyond simple one-purpose companies, but rather companies with multifaceted purposes. And then since they have a whole bunch of different revenue streams and they're a little bit diversified, they may survive a little bit longer. Now, of course, that is a little pie in the sky for me. That is a little future optimistic and really pulling some things from midair because some country companies will truly just specialize in one thing. But imagine, you know what Rockefeller was good at? Rockefeller wasn't just good at getting oil out of the ground or transporting the oil or refining the oil. He was good at all of them. He had a completely vertically integrated supply chain and now i understand that is monopoly territory and it can be dangerous but that is how you reduce costs between different functions instead of having to sell that energy to a desalination plant and then have that desalination plant sell its water onto the customer you can just have one company that uses its own resources that it's creating with the wind turbines and then selling the water onto the customer and therefore they can have it at a cheaper rate i think that this is a promising and it's one of the ones i wanted to highlight the most there are other ones like i talked about the net that they're putting up in high altitude locations to catch water from clouds like the incas used to do and there are a few other ones in here but that this is the one that really inspired me the most because not only is it the furthest along it's not an experiment it's not a project that's funded in academia this is a company that's already doing it and they're basing this project out of dubai especially it's important in dubai because it's a country that has a limited amount of freshwater resources so i think there's a possibility here that vcs are going to turn around their framing they're going to come in and give these companies a little bit more money because they're starting to see that there is an opportunity here. And the reason the author focuses on European VCs is because in the U.S. we do have some companies that have been trying to do this, and VCs are a little bit more willing to go out on the edge here. They just had the first unicorn company, which I believe they said was valued at $125 billion. So there are new and thriving companies out there all across the world, but now you're starting to see them pop up in Europe which is good because, let's be clear, Europe is one of those places that they kind of have a legacy and esteem about them. And if their population, their upper crust, their VC culture is against a certain technology, then it may not get as far as it needs to. The U.S., we are full of companies that go up, they run, they boom, and then they bust very quickly. If the European market's starting to take notice and willing to spend extra money on it, there's a certain air that, oh, okay, these are actually more proper. They're going to last a long time. They're not just boom-bust companies that are going to get sold off in their 
assets are just going to be misused by a different country. No, these are sustainable companies that have a very clear goal in mind and a way to get to that goal. At least that's my perception of what's going on here. Maybe it's a little bit different, but that's how I look at it. So let's jump to our second article that is a lot more pie in the sky, or should I say elevator in the sky, quite literally. So the idea of a space elevator has been around for a long time. The author really starts by telling us about the idea that Konstantin Televoski had in 1895 when he went to the Eiffel Tower, and he thought, oh, what if we could have a tower or a structure that's over 22,000 miles high? And then it was deemed the space elevator. There's been a few different ideas over the years. And the whole point here is that we're trying to get materials, or the reason a space elevator would be essential or important. We are trying to get materials to space. We have SpaceX that uses reusable rockets. We've had NASA create rockets in the past that were just traditional, that were one-time, two-time use. And they're very, very expensive to get things into the outer atmosphere. Quote, when people first started exploring space into the 1960s, it would cost upwards of 80000 adjusted for inflation, to put a single pound of payload into low Earth orbit. The major reason for the high cost was the need to build a new expensive rocket for every launch. What really started to change was when SpaceX began making cheap reusable rockets. And today the company is ferrying customer payloads to LEO at the price of just $1,300 per pound. This is making space accessible to scientists, startups, and tourists who could never have afforded it previously. But the cheapest way to reach orbit may not be a rocket at all. It could be an elevator. And the reason the author says this is, in theory, if they were to get a space elevator working at a point that is just high enough above the atmosphere that it could just be suspended there and we have a tether that comes down to the Earth, then we could, in theory, quote, have a payload to any Earth orbit could be as low as $100 per pound. And this is really, really important because, as you know, Artemis, one of the missions from NASA, I've done a few reporting things on it here in the past, they're starting to build or at least put the infrastructure down on the moon in order to have a space base, so to speak. So think about the fact that in order to get 100 pounds into space right now, it's going to run you, what is it, $1,300 times 100 you're looking at $130,000, if I'm not mistaken. So just to get that 100 pounds up there, we're spending a good chunk of money. And while there are different companies that are willing to spend that, and the government's definitely willing to give money to private ventures in order to fund getting their different products or different infrastructure or material to the moon, of course, you know, the government can spend that money if they want to. I, I wouldn't be in favor of it as a taxpayer to spend all that extra money if we could build a tether that would be able to get it there for $100 rather than the aforementioned $130,000. And let's be clear, that's not fair. It would be 100 times 100, which is $10,000. So instead of it being $130,000 to get the same 100 pounds into the atmosphere or at least into space for the beginning part of it, it would be $10,000. 
I'd be much more in favor of that, especially if my tax dollars are going to go to it anyway. And then those tax dollars are going to go to the companies getting it into space. So that's why this is at least semi-important in the short term. Why is it important in the long term? One, I think that having a way that is cheap and affordable that to get people into space is extremely, extremely beautiful when it comes to ideas that I have heard. Because imagine, have you ever been to one of those really tall towers in a city? Maybe you go to New York City every once in a while, or even you live in New York City, but then you go to the tallest tower in the city, you go to the top floor, you look down, and you have a totally different perspective on the city that you are used to living in. Or maybe you're climbing up a canyon and you can't really see out and you can't see the view. And then right at, towards the end, you get to the top of the mountain and you're able to see out for miles upon miles. And that new view, that different look from a little bit higher up gives you a totally different perspective. Now imagine what happens if you're able to send somebody to the top of the atmosphere, if not a little bit further, and they're able to look down on Earth in its entirety, or at least whatever part of the hemisphere they're coming from, they could see half of the Earth at any given time. Imagine what that would do to people. Imagine the perspective change that they would be suddenly forced into having. And if it was done this way, rather than having to go up in a rocket, and it's just a tether with an elevator that takes you all the way up to the top, if we were to refine the technology, in my, theory, in my opinion, it could be a lot safer than having a giant bomb strapped behind you trying to launch you into space. No, you just go up an elevator, which is a technology we've had for a long time. The only thing I would be worried about is the tether, which is something that is still under contention today. But the reason I think it's important not just to get things up there cheaply, not just to build out the space infrastructure, not just to have a port where all these companies can bring back the raw materials that they're mining from all their asteroids and everything like that. It just provides an opportunity for us as human beings to look down on this beautiful place that we call home and have a different perspective and maybe understand how small we are inside this giant universe. And maybe it will change our ego about ourselves and maybe it will make people really address their ego about themselves compared to the rest of human society. Maybe they might start treating people a little bit nicer. Maybe some people will just be in shock and all and nothing will change once they leave. But imagine sending a whole class of school kids up there, our next future leaders, and they get to look down on this small little marble that we are and appreciate our place in the universe and humble them a little bit. I'm just saying that's one possibility. That's me being a little bit romantic, a little bit... Oh, well, think about the impression it could leave all these kids, blah, blah, blah. I know. But I do think that there is something there. And that's what, one of the reasons that I've really wanted to go to space, to be able to look down on this planet and see it from a completely different point of view. Rather than looking at the day-to-day, what appears to be mostly flat, you know, I only ever see my segment of Virginia I want to see the entirety. I want to see the whole thing. I want to see it cast against that black spatial background, that emptiness that stretches forever and ever. I just think there's something beautiful about that. And I would love for other people to have that experience. And if this geocentric or this geostatic satellite that would have the tether connected to it would offer that, I think it'd be pretty cool. But like I just said, Tether, well, that is one of the big issues that they're working on. 
For a long time, people thought it was going to be carbon nanotubes. Quote, carbon nanotubes might have been the early front runner on the tether material for space elevators, but there are other options which now include graphene, an essentially two-dimensional form of carbon that already is easier to scale up than nanotubes, though it is still not easy. Contrary to Edwards' report, John Hopkins University researchers Sean Sun and Dan Popesco say Kevlar fibers could work. We would just need to constantly repair to the tether, the same way that the human body constantly repairs its tendons. Quote, when they did, speedy little robot climbers patrolling up and down the tether would replace them, adjusting the rate of maintenance and repair as needed, mimicking the sensitivity of a biological process. And then there's also some astronomers from the University of Cambridge and Columbia University that also think Kevlar could work for a space elevator if we built it from the moon rather than from Earth. They call their concept the space line, end quote. So the reason that they want to do it from the moon is that there's less gravitational pull, there's less stress because the moon doesn't rotate as far as we know, so the tether wouldn't necessarily have to be as strong, and it could be held taut by the fact that the geospatial satellite is actually being pulled by Earth's gravity, so that keeps it from getting slack, and then we'd be able to send things up and down. And that's one way to really address the idea that once we get into space with this geostatic space elevator, how are we going to get this material anywhere useful? Are we going to have little spaceships rocketing back and forth between the moon? Imagine you have two of them. Imagine you have a space tether that comes out of Earth's orbit, and then you have another one that comes out of the moon. And then as they link up with one another every 24 hours or however long the cycle is, then you can pass material back and forth and then have it go straight to the Artemis base on the moon. These are just really interesting things that make you think about where we're going as a civilization. Maybe you'll be able to have a house on the moon here soon or a little vacation house where you can go up there and just view Earth and maybe there'll be some artificial water and it'll be like a gray beach where you just look out on the horizon into the vast nothingness and contemplate your life with your family. Who knows? The possibilities are practically endless and that's why I really like this article because it talks about a topic, the space elevator, that has been discussed for a very long time but gives us a lot of new information. And I also kind of wanted to wax poetic about the idea of sending people up to the geocentric or the geostatic space station where you can look down back on Earth. And, you know, that's just me. I'm sorry it is what it is, but it is called future focus for a reason. We're looking at what the future could look like and how we may get there. Speaking of more things in the future and how we can get there, you know, normally when we want to determine how we're going to get something or get a final result, we do a lot of modeling. Well, now there is a new deep learning program that helps us understand the molecular makeup when we're modeling something, which allows us to better understand how different processes would interact with one another, how different chemical reactions would affect the electron, so on and so forth. Now, this let's be clear, the language here is pretty darn dense, and that doesn't mean that I'm going to be able to fully explain and understand everything they're talking about, but I'm going to at least put the information out there so if you're smarter than me and you can really absorb what they're saying here, then you can appreciate it. Quote, the arrangement of electrons in matter, known as the electronic structure, plays a crucial role in the fundamental but also applied research such as drug design and energy storage. 
However, the lack of a simulation technique that offers both high fidelity and scalability across different time and length scales has long been a roadblock for the progress of these technologies. Researchers from the Center of Advanced Systems Understanding, or CAUCUS, at the Helmholtz Zentrum Desdrin Rosendorf in Gorlitz, Germany, and the Scandia National Laboratory in Albuquerque, New Mexico, U.S., have been pioneering a a machine learning-based simulation model that supersedes traditional electronic structure simulation techniques. Their materials learning algorithm, or MALA, software stack enables us to access previously unattainable lengths of scale. So basically, we're able to better simulate what's going on on the electron interaction level. So why does this help applied research, let's say? Quote, Cogni aims to push the boundaries of electronic structure calculations by leveraging machine learning. We anticipate that MALA will spark a transformation in electronic structure calculations as we now have a method to simulate significantly larger systems at an unprecedented speed. In the future, researchers will be able to address a broad range of societal challenges based on a significantly improved baseline, including developing new vaccines and novel materials for energy storage, conducting large-scale simulations for semiconductor devices, studying material defects, and exploring chemical reactions for converting the atmosphere greenhouse gas carbon dioxide into climate-friendly materials. So remember in the last article when we talked about graphene, it's basically two-dimensional carbon dioxide. Well, imagine we have a system now that can better predict how we would make more of it at scale and how we could convert other items into graphene. Or imagine how we talked about the other day when we're discussing the sodium sodium ion batteries rather than lithium ion batteries. Now we can model what a different type of material would look like in some of these batteries, and we can have a better understanding of how feasible, how easy, how hard it would be to use these different materials in place of lithium in a battery. Or maybe we could just test what its energy storage capacity would be overall because we're modeling the electrons or better able to model the electron interaction between different materials and how electricity may flow through it. So this is why this is important. It's a more in-depth modeling system that allows us to look at more possibilities and test different hypotheses before we even get them off the ground. And I think this is really, really cool. It's one of those things where you understand that we've been working on deep learning, AI, different computer programs for a long time that can handle more information. And the further along we get, the better we can get at testing things in a computer simulation that can more accurately resemble the real world. The reason that this has been hard in the past is because electrons are really complex. Atoms, looking at atoms, nuclei, electrons, that's a lot of small information that you have to process and how they interact with one another. There could be 32,000 electrons in a cup of water. And trying to simulate different outcomes based on that with maybe a different material that you put in the water with another 10,000 electrons, that's really complex. It's a lot of information. So in order to best model how all of these things will work out, we have to have a really robust system that is able to best utilize its resources. And that's what MALA offers. It's a stack that you can put on a whole bunch of different really complex computing devices. And I think this shows that, hey, 
We're working really, really hard to not just understand the physical world in a purely testable, applicable research base, but also in the simulation world. Because imagine we don't actually have to test everything, like CAD. You don't actually have to go out, engineer something, and see where it fails, even though you probably should, because real-world dynamics is different than a computer simulation. But CAD can point out, okay, this may be a problem when you are doing it in the real world, or, hey, no, this won't work at all in the real world when you're modeling something. And then you can move on from those ideas rather than waste time actually creating the, in this case, maybe you have an idea for a vaccine. Instead of creating a vaccine, going through all the trials, your model that you have in Mala would say, no, 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 okay, this isn't going to work at all. So move on to the next one before you spend a whole bunch of resources and money putting it into practice in the real world. I think this is why this is really impressive. And it shows another level, another side, another layer of our innovation as human beings in utilizing all these beautiful technologies that we have developed over the last few years. And even though I was just positive, we're going to end on an even more funny slash positive note which is our daily delight that comes from USA Today. Mama Bear persuades cubs to scale a wall in adorable footage. So if you've ever seen a mom with her kid, there are the overprotective types, there are the types that let their kids fall and fail. This is one of the latter, one who got up the wall, but then she's looking down at her cubs like, well, they figured it out, maybe I should go help them. No, no, I'm going to let them figure it out for themselves. Quote, But the roadside wall was steep, and the tiny clubs were new at climbing. Mama Bear seems to realize this and is about to descend the wall when one cub safely scrambles up and over. So, end quote. So you have your first winner. You have that first cub. She's like, okay, I know it's possible now. I know that they're a little bit smaller, so they can still find their way up. But uh, what about the other ones? Quote, this seems to have inspired the other cubs, one of which followed the route taken by the first. Rooting on them, Johnson says in the video, Come on, little guys, you can do it. Climb, climb. Mission accomplished. The Bear family finally continues on in its adventure safely off the road, albeit into someone's backyard. End quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article, or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip. Go check all those out if you want to. Thanks for joining me today for another Future Focus. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.